1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So you say you have a bad flinching problem? Flinching is not good. How do you get rid of it? Well, we all know flinching does not contribute to successful hunting. <laughs> it is really screwing up your accuracy if you flinch, meaning you move, you jerk, you close your eyes, you dread the kick of that rifle. How do you prevent it? And if you already have it, how do you get rid of it? Well, probably a little more easily than you might imagine. Let's just see what's happening here with one of our patrons, Gimpy has written me about flinching. When I was just learning how to shoot to overcome any flinching or bad trigger control, my dad insisted on loading whichever gun I was practicing with that day. He would load a full magazine, but every now and then he would load in an empty cartridge or a snap cap, and then he would stand behind me with a rolled up newspaper. <laughs> and if he ever saw the muzzle move after only hearing a click, he would have hit me in the back of the head with that rolled up newspaper. <laughs> Ooh, that's kind of extreme. I learned really quickly how to not only squeeze the trigger properly, but also never flinch. When my wife and son started learning how to properly handle a firearm, the rolled up newspaper was tossed to the side. However, the practice of never allowing the shooter to load their own magazine stayed with me, and a flinch was followed by an embarrassed look and a good hearty laugh from the family and a few others at the range. They both learned not to flinch, and neither one is afraid to shoot any gun in the house. It is a pleasure to watch my 125-pound son sit behind my 300 Winchester Magnum and hit the target with every shot, and he's never complained about having a sore shoulder after a day at the range. It would be interesting to hear your method and other methods that you've heard of for eliminating flinching and teaching trigger control. P.S. To this day, if I ever flinch, I still have an automatic reaction of ducking and waiting for the sound of a rolled up newspaper hitting the back of my head. <laughs> so Gimpy is flinching at the proper time after his shot, not during. 
All right, well, dispensing with the rolled up newspaper would be my first recommendation. But otherwise, Gimpy, you are right on with this approach. It's the one that I use. Only I uh, load the magazine or the cartridge actually uh, in the rifle behind the shooter. So my friend, my wife, whoever is shooting doesn't know what's going on behind them when I load the gun. Sounds like I'm loading a round in, but I might or might not put a live round in the chamber. Put it on safe, safely hand them the rifle, and then they shoot. And of course, I start off with an empty chamber. And sure enough, if they're prone to flinching, you're going to see it. There's going to be that push forward, uh, closing the eyes. And it's a great trick to put a phone camera right there at whatever camera you have, a video and record them doing it because some people don't quite appreciate how violently they flinch until they see it. So film it and film from several angles if you want, including a tight shot of the trigger because a lot of folks will only flinch with their trigger finger. It's subtle, but it's enough. I watched uh, a woman shooting one time at a range and she had the twitchiest finger I have ever seen. She was on and off of that trigger constantly. Instead, you want to be on the trigger kissing it as we say and then just gradually tighten it up until you're ready to make that final break and none of this off and on stuff a lot of things to look for so filming is a good idea but it is the surprise of a cartridge not going off that reveals the flinch and this is the perfect way to cure it and I've done it myself when I sometimes will get into a flinching and I need to cure it I'll have somebody do it to me and when I no longer think about oh this rifle is going to go off and kick uh, I will aim properly good trigger control and hit my target if the gun had gone off now the way that you can see that and this is a great way to practice by yourself with an empty gun is to watch the sights on the target when the trigger breaks. If you're concentrating on your sight picture and you're looking at that reticle on the target and it goes click, you should be able to say the crosshair was an inch low and two inches left or right or dead on, whatever. You should be able to see that. And that's what you want to do when you're live firing. You want to imagine that you're going to see right where the sights are when the shot breaks. And when you do that, you can call your shots. None of this closing your eyes for a split second. And boy, that helps with the flinch stuff too. So dry fire practice at home, filming yourself when you're shooting, load or don't load a live cartridge behind. Man, when you do that, after about five or six clicks with nothing in there, the shooter will calm down and begin to precisely shoot. Then you slide, uh, slip a live round in and kabang. They don't feel the flinch. I mean, they don't feel the recoil. It doesn't hurt. And they hit the target and it's like, wow, this really works. You just keep repeating that until you get that flinch out of them. I don't think you can beat it. Good technique without the newspaper. <laughs> now we have another uh, another patron asking about some scope mounts, and this is this is an oldie but goodie. We used to see this a lot back when I was a kid, especially in the mid twentieth century. There were a lot of people who used tall, see through scope mounts. These days they're poo pooed, bad idea. Gets your scope too high. They're really bad, bad, bad. But this gentleman doesn't quite think so. His name is Ryan, and this is what he wrote. Hey, Ron, what is your opinion on see-through or raised scope mounts? I've had people tell me that they are garbage. They're not accurate. Don't use them because you can't get a good cheek weld. Well, I've used them for years on all of my Marlin lever actions, and I've never had a single problem with them. I figured if anyone would know, it would be you. And I wrote back, hey, Ryan, your success 
pretty much answers the question. Purists like to poo-poo see-through mounts because they aren't ideal, but this idea that you need a perfect cheek weld on a rifle every time in order to be an accurate shooter is largely myth too. You're aiming the device with open or scope sights. All of the cheek weld does is more easily quickly align your eye with the sights and target. Useful or fast shooting or offsetting a scope with a major parallax issue, uh, which most of us don't have, so it's really not a problem. See-through mounts create a bit of a clumsy rig being so high, but unless you're hiking and still hunting for hours on end, it's really no big deal. Stick with what works for you. And I think that's really good advice for anyone who shoots. Yes, you can go for perfection. You can set up the, the perfect mount with a perfect cheek weld. But this idea that something like a see-through high-mounted scope is going to completely ruin your success is ridiculous. <laughs> now, what some of us might be wondering, what, what the heck is this see-through mount business? It's to enable you to still be able to use your open sights. In the early days when scopes were just coming into fashion, they were not all that reliable and guys were hesitant about putting it on their rifle. What happens if the scope breaks and I can't see through it, it gets fogged, etc., etc., and there's the deer. I want to be able to use my open sights. So the solution was to make a, a mount ring system that allowed you to see through it underneath the scope to use your open sights. And then you had a chance to use your scope just raise your head a little bit. And there, of course, is the problem with that cheek weld. But once again, you've got the rifle up against your shoulder. You can have it lower down on your chin to steady the lateral movement a little bit. And you can see through the scope to line the sights up. Unless there's a huge parallax problem in that scope and you get your eye way off center, you're not going to miss your shot at a big game animal. So it is a practical solution for folks who still want to have access to their open sights and don't trust their scopes. Not ideal. But what the hey, it's not a problem, and it seems to work for folks just like Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Ryan. All right. Let us see what sort of questions the team has pulled together for us. Oh, here's somebody right here in Idaho, Ryan. Ron, I love watching all of your videos and listening to all of your podcasts. Well, great. Well, glad to have you, Ryan. I am looking for bigger cartridge for elk, bear, and sometimes moose. I'm thinking about the 6.8 Western or the 300 WSM. Which would you choose and why? Boy, that's a good question, Ryan. You've got a couple of great options here. Uh, and there's a couple of ways you can go. Now, for, for pure performance, 
gosh, I don't know. If, if you like the idea of a little bit flatter trajectory, a little bit longer reach, that 6.8 Western, which is a 2.7 uh, caliber, and it's fast twist rate, as you know, you're going to be able to shoot 175 grain bullets at the, at the upper end. So 150 to 175 grains, that is more than enough for the animals you listed. Um, and you're going to have some pretty flat trajectories with that. The 300 WSM, I mean, gosh, that's the short action version of the, the standard 300 wind mag. You're going to come, well, you're going to get the same muzzle velocities or be within about 50 feet per second of them. So really no difference there. And you'll have it obviously in a little bit shorter, handier, lighter rifle. And then you're going to be able to shoot bullets from, uh, you know, the 30s. You can go everywhere from a 100 grain plinker up to a 250 grain extreme range, something or others. Probably not going to be too successful in that short case with that big long bullet. But in the more reasonably balanced options in the real world, you'd be looking at a 165 grain bullet for, say, deer and 180 for elk or maybe 200 and the same for moose and big bears if you really wanted to be concerned about deep deep penetration you can step up to a 210 grain bullet in it but i think it's optimum with probably a 190 grain bullet to a 200 grain bullet now you're going to have a little more recoil with that we recoil doesn't bother you not a problem um but either one is going to do the job for you something you might want to consider is longevity the 6.8 Western is new enough that nobody is really certain it's going to catch on and be really popular in the future. Whereas the 300 WSM has proven itself and it's going to hang in there. I think that's kind of a standard. We're not going to see it disappear anytime soon. So if you go with the 6.8 Western, I think you should figure to hand load. Get your brass and all your components, and then you'll be set for life. It doesn't matter if the uh, cartridge fades away. You'll have your rifle. You'll have your cases. You can hand load, and you should be fine. But do consider that. I hate to say that so that people say, well, gee, I'm never going to buy a 6.8 Western until it's proven itself and I know it's going to hang around for 50 years. You could run out your lifetime before you figure out that's what's going to happen. <laughs> so if you want to take advantage of something new like that, you just have to jump on it. Um, if it has advantages that you like, go for it. Yeah, just um, the smart thing to do is be a hand loader. All right. Great question, Ryan. And hey, good luck with your hunting career. All right. Here is Jeff, who's not going to tell us exactly where he is other than USA. And that's good enough for me. Ron, can you do a video about different styles of rifle stocks? I see things like American style, Manlicher, Bavarian, Monte Carlo. Why would you want each of those? Also, why do old lever actions have such a big drop in the stock compared to modern rifles? What was the advantage? Good questions, Jeff. Some stock lines are merely artistic expression, and a lot of them don't make any sense from a functional standpoint. I've seen some really goofy stock lines come out of some custom manufacturers that would just, what are they thinking? <laughs> but some of them actually contribute to more effective shooting or handling. So let's start with the older one, the lever actions with a more drop in it. If you go back a generation beyond that, even with the muzzle loaders and the flintlocks, especially, you'll notice those stocks just go diving down at the back because they had a heads up shooting style for one thing, and they're using open sights. So really your eye only has to be in line with the top of the barrel. They didn't have high sights. Even on 
Modern rifles, even on the ones without a scope mount, if they have open sights, those open sights are usually sitting up on a ramp. They're pretty darn high. The idea there is that if you decide to go with a scope, you're going to have a high need for your sight lineup anyway. So they're keeping everything high so that when you've cheeked that rifle, you can see both the open sight and if you change to a scope, you'll be looking down the scope rather than under it. Yeah, obviously with uh, flintlocks, they weren't doing that, nor were they with a lever ash and cowboy guns. So there was quite a bit more drop at the heel and drop at the comb. And it wasn't a real big issue with light kicking rifles. But when you start to get a heavier bullet and really put some recoil into that rifle, you start to get the rifle coming up and slapping you in the cheek. A lot of us think recoil is just back in the shoulder and ouch, that hurt. But I think much of the pain is this up into the face and that's where the comb really plays a role. So if you've got a comb and or heel that comes way down from the barrel, so your barrel's up here and then the force of the barrel coming back gets transferred down at an angle into the stock, it's going to kick up more and hit you in the head. Whereas if you can keep a straight comb, straight stock in line with the barrel, it comes straight back and you get less of that bite on your head. So there's the practical reasons for having a high comb and a straight comb. And these days, even a comb that rises toward the heel rather than dropping. Makes sense that way. Now, the Monte Carlo stock with that hump on there, that's to get the cheek higher for your cheek weld to use your scope. That was put on well, the Weatherby rifles especially because almost all of those were figured to be using a scope because they were such high velocity. Long reach, you're going to have a scope. You want to get your eye up there to see through the scope, put the Monte Carlo hump on that comb. And then the cheek piece, that raised piece that sticks out, that's just to give you more cheek contact, helps you steady the rifle, get a better cheek weld on it, and it also spreads the recoil out across your cheek and your face rather than having a sharp comb by itself kicking up into your, well, this bone right here on your face, that cheekbone. So that's the practical reason. Now, the Manlicher and the Bavarian styles. Manlicher is the full length stock to the end of the barrel um, and some people just like the look of it I don't know I think back in the day maybe it helped protect the barrel from damage and or bending a little bit more um, maybe it added a little bit more stiffness for better accuracy but mainly people like the man liquor just because of the look you either like it or you don't I particularly don't care for it but some people just dote on it and the Bavarian style, that has more of a drop in the comb generally, and it's a little more ornate for artistic reasons, I guess, mostly a taste thing. But I don't see any huge benefits or functional benefits to a Bavarian style. Um, I do like the American style, which is that more straight comb in line with the barrel to control the uh, recoil coming straight back. I think that really works well. And it, it, to me, it just looks like the properly styled rifle. It looks right. Okay, good questions, Jeff. David from Texas. Have you ever heard the name Thomas Reed Barnes in the long-range shooting world, 1,000 yards? This is an easy one. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am not into the long-range competition shooting world. I don't know who the big champions are, who the heroes are. Um, you might as well ask me about oh, golf or football, not American-style football either, soccer. <laughs> I don't know who the stars are. I just don't want to pay attention to that stuff. 
Um, so anybody else have anything to say about Thomas Reed Barnes, you're welcome to write in and tell us all about him, and I will read it on another episode. John from Michigan, what are your thoughts on the 32 Special Winchester Rifle? Wow, that's the second time now in the last month or so that I've been asked about the 32 Special. And now you're asking about the rifle. I assume you mean the cartridge as well as the rifle. Well, the rifle will be your 1894 lever action Winchester rifle. Same one that is commonly known as the 3030. And the 32 Special, or the 32 Winchester Special, was an offshoot of the 3030. So in 95, they came out with the 3030 first commercial U.S. cartridge smokeless powder driven. Started a whole new trend, right? That was a big deal. Then in oh, about 1902, the, uh, they came out with a 32 Special, which if you look at the dimensions and everything else, pretty much it's the 3030 case necked up to take the 32 caliber bullet. Um, and what do you get with that? Of course, you get a fatter bullet, you get a little bit heavier bullet, you get a little more energy in that bullet with the same powder driving behind it. And back in those days, Winchester was claiming, and apparently they were getting roughly 20% better performance out of the 32 as far as energy in the bullet. Um, how that translates downrange, though, is a little bit different because you've got a wider bullet, and if they're both the same weight, driven by the same amount of powder, even though the larger surface area on the back of the 32 caliber bullet is going to enable it to be driven a little bit faster, it also has more surface area to drag in the wind, and it'll slow down, lose energy, and drop a little bit more. So at distance, and I would say it probably happens at around 100 yards or so, the 30-30 with the same weight bullet starts to have better retained energy downrange, shoots a little bit flatter. The upshot is the 32 Winchester Special is really not a huge advantage over the 3030. And especially these days with modern ammunition, if you look at the numbers now uh, with factory loads, you're probably neck and neck. There might be a 5 to 10% advantage in the 32 over the 3030 in initial muzzle energy. But Downrange, the 3030 again takes over. It'll have a little higher sectional density to its bullet, so potentially could have a little bit better penetration. Realistically, I think it's a wash. The deer or the elk are, they're not going to notice the difference. Uh, but if you have a 32 uh, Winchester Special and you like it, go for it. The rifle itself, as I said, probably a Model 94 lever action, but it could be a Marlin. Um, I'm not sure who else chambered for it. Remington never had lever action, so they didn't, but they did take that 32 and make it into, I think, the 30 and or the 35, basically. They just took the rim off of it, and then it functioned in pump action and auto-loading rifles that Remington was selling, but the performance was just about identical. All right, good question, John. John was from Michigan, by the way. That's the Wolverine State, although I don't think they have a lot of Wolverines left in Michigan. Barry from Tennessee. Ron, I love your content. Thank you, sir. Your good name is being used in a gun giveaway scam. Oh, this again. Yeah, that's perennial. I've commented on your um, great knife podcast, and then they sent your picture and a number, a phone number for me. No, a number for me to text to saying that I'd won a Lango Arms alien pistol, $5,100 retail value. I hope you have a way to warn people about this. Yeah. Well, this is a great way to warn them, Barry. Thanks for bringing it up. I, I think about doing this from time to time and often forget. I should do it on every one of my shows. 
I do not offer these prizes, guys. This is some scam. They steal my image. They steal my website. They use my name. They pretend to be me. And they say, you've won something. Contact us. And by the time they get done working you over, they're trying to get your contact information to do whatever scams they do with that or get you to send them money for shipping and handling. And then what they do is they ship you misery because you get nothing. (laughs) They just take your money. It's all a scam. No freebies coming from Ron Spomer Outdoors. If we ever do some kind of a contest or a giveaway, you'll see my lips moving. (laughs) I'll do it on my regular broadcast, Ron Spomer Outdoors YouTube channel. And you can see me. Well, no, no, I shouldn't probably even promise you that because with AI, artificial intelligence coming on board, they'll probably soon have a complete Ron Spomer Outdoors program with my apparent face saying apparently in my voice my words it'll all be fake and we're all in the toilet on this one folks so let's hope this doesn't happen but right now i can assure you i am not giving anything away don't send your money to anybody i was gonna say unless you want to send it to me but then that would be a scam too (laughs) oh god what a world all right another one from michigan brett Ron, in a recent video, you were commenting on bullet performance and mentioned that some shots above the shoulder resulted in dropping the animal, possibly due to the bullet impacting the solar plexus. It's actually not the solar plexus. It's the brachial uh, plexus, which is located in most animals above the shoulder, but below the spine. Okay. That's why so many high shoulder shots drop an animal in its tracks from the bullet itself or bone fragments. The solar plexus is located more towards the lower torso of the animal. Keep up the good info. All right. Thanks for the correction there, Brett. Yeah, and I've read that in the past and I get it confused or forgot the term brachial. But what you're describing is a bundle of nerves in that area that apparently if you hit it just right, you shock a lot with that nerve correction. But I've often found when I'm butchering my animals after taking a high shoulder shot that I've broken the spine because right up there over the shoulders and then the neck that spine arcs down and then up into the neck so if you're just a little bit high in the shoulder it's a good chance you're going to either hit the spine directly or as you said blow some bone fragments from the shoulder into it and or and or you're close enough to it to drop them on the spot but boy it works that high shoulder shot really can do the job for dropping an animal in its tracks okay zebra from new york now this sounds familiar it's not zebra but zebra and it uh i hope i didn't read this once before all right i'm back with another okay he's back <laughs> this is the guy uh, welcome back zebra okay i'm back with another cartridge question Over the past few questions, I have asked about cartridges for a rifle I want to build in the future, and the last time I asked about the 28 Sherman Magnum. However, since then, I've decided on a 30 caliber round, and I want one based on the 30-06. I was thinking 30-06 AI, that's not artificial intelligence, by the way, that's actually improved. That's an AI I can get behind, folks. I was thinking of a 30-06 Ackley Improved or a 30 Gibbs, but there's, oh, before I go on, the 30 Gibbs was a Wildcat cartridge or a proprietary cartridge made by a gentleman named Rocky Gibbs up in North Idaho, just north of Moscow. I used to live up there, and I went right through this little town where he had his shop, but he was already gone by the time I got there. 
At any rate, the Gibbs cartridges were 30-06 cases that were just maximized or improved to the max for highest possible velocity. So back to uh, Zeba's question here or his statement about what he wants to build. But there is also now the 300 Sherman. And by God, get this, folks. The 300 Sherman is also from North Idaho. This is a, a current wildcatter who's cranking out all kinds of Sherman cartridges. And he maximizes the potential of each case, too. So now, now this guy's got two options out of Idaho, the old Gibbs from the 50s and 60s or the new 300 Sherman from right now. Finally, Zeba's question is this. What is the difference between the 300 Sherman and the 300 Sherman Magnum? I think the Magnum is an improved 300 PRC, and the standard 300 Sherman is a 30-06 improved. Any insights on the 300 Sherman is much appreciated, especially how to make the brass. Just fire form it or false shoulder needed? Hmm. Boy, Zeba, you're asking a bunch of questions to me. You should be asking of Mr. Sherman because he has so many different options. He's got short cartridges with his name, 300 Sherman. He's got long ones, 300 Sherman. He's got Magnum's 300. I don't understand all of them. I haven't worked with them, but you need to check out the Sherman cartridges to figure out what's going on. I do know that the 300 Sherman was a 30-06 improved to the max, kind of like the Gibbs. I don't know if it's better or not, or significantly different or not, but if you're thinking of working off of a 30-06, probably that's the one you want to work with. One of the other ones is on the WSM style, short and fat. Um, yeah, and then making the brass, I, I, you're probably going to have to buy it from him. Uh, you. I would think you could use 30-06 in fire form. They can't be that different. It works with the Ackley improved version. I don't see why it wouldn't work with this one. But once again, you just really need to find out from Sherman directly. Um, I, I will tell you this. You're going you're gonna to be a real rifle nut to fool around with this stuff because your gain is going to be minimal for the effort you put into it. But I think, as you already know, and a lot of people need to know, is that a lot of us, play around with this stuff, not because we are going to then have the optimum cartridge and rifle. It's more of we're going to have fun working with this stuff, developing it, creating it, <laughs> being proud of whatever the heck we have. You know, it's just like any other hobby that folks have. You like to have your customized versions of your tennis racket or your bicycle or you name it. So this is a fun way to do it. So if you want to play around and optimize your particular cartridge and rifle for your desires and needs, this is a good way to do it. So yeah, contact Sherman. Just check him out on the web and see what he's got to offer. Make your choice. And that looks like our last one. So Zeba and Brett, Barry, John, David, Jeff, Ryan, and our patrons, we want to thank all of you for jumping on board here and giving me something to work with. Really appreciate it. And I still have to do something on this penetration stuff. I've talked about it before, haven't gotten around to it, but I'm getting dribs and drabs. People are writing in and saying, we know why the 220 Swift 48 grain bullet can penetrate steel armor and the 30 out six armor penetrating bullet cannot. <laughs> so we're going to see if we can make some sense to all of that. Try to get her done in the next podcast. Until then, let's all hunt on us and shoot straight. Mm -hmm.